Hello everybody. Construction is a sector where health and safety really sits at the heart of what everyone does. It has to. There are so many activities undertaken on a construction site that present hazards which need to be properly assessed and managed and then appropriate procedures put in place so that the construction work can be carried out safely. My name is Nevo Higgins and I'm head of the construction and engineering team at Arthur Cox and also a member of the firm's health and safety group. In this audio briefing, I'm going to be joined by Brian Gillespie, who's an associate in our team, and we're going to discuss the health and safety impact of COVID-19 in the construction sector. And then we're also going to touch on some of the latest figures from the Health and Safety Authority, which indicate that the leading cause of fatal accidents in the sector continues to be falls from height. I'm now going to bring in Katrina Donnelly, our professional support lawyer, to help walk us through some of the issues we're seeing. Hello, Neve, and hello to you, the listener. Well, we're in the middle of a third lockdown and only work that is an essential service can be done at the minute. As a result, since 8th of January, most construction sites have been closed. Before we look at what that means, Neve, how do you think the industry has coped with the pandemic overall? So all things considered, I think the sector's coped really well with managing the impact of COVID-19 on construction activities. As our listeners will know, Construction is a sector where there are numerous hazards for those working in the industry. And as a result, even in normal times, those involved in construction are well used to having to deal with stringent health and safety protocols. And so perhaps it's no surprise that the sector was so adept at dealing with the new hazards which have been presented by the pandemic and in such a short space of time. For most of last year, construction sites in Ireland have had to follow very strict protocols to allow projects to proceed and to ensure the continued safety of all construction workers. The government's return to work safety protocol, which was first issued in May, made it clear that businesses, and that includes those in the construction sector, needed to take a risk-based approach in bringing employees back to the workplace safely. And risk assessment is something that those working in construction are certainly very good at. Indeed, construction sites have been recognized as doing very well in terms of managing and mitigating COVID-19, thus helping prevent the spread due to its world-class standard operating procedure. And just on this, it was the Construction Industry Federation that played such a key role in ensuring all of this could happen. As early as April of last year, the CIF published standard operating procedures to provide the industry with practical guidance on how to be able to work safely in the face of COVID-19. And it is probably fair to say that the industry has not balked at taking on the challenges which have been posed by the pandemic. Okay, so it sounds like the construction industry was already operating within a sophisticated health and safety framework anyway. And so it was possibly better equipped to adapt to COVID-19 than many might have anticipated. Uh, We heard you mention the standard operating procedures, Neve, And I think we can all see in our mind's eye that document with the two metres social distancing image on the front. Brian, would you tell us a bit more about the standard operating procedures? Hi, Katrina. Yeah, so almost as soon as the industry was put into lockdown with the site closures during April and May of last year, the Construction Industry Federation jumped into action. And it was really them who spearheaded the development of the standard operating procedures, or SOPs as they're also called. And from the get-go, the CAF engaged with government in terms of agreeing what was required to ensure the industry could reopen safely. And since the first iteration of the SOP on the 14th of April 2020, there have been constant updates and improvements, and there have actually been a further seven revisions issued of that document. 
the most recent one being issued on the 7th of January of 2021. Now, I'm sure that most of our listeners will be broadly familiar with the document, but I think it's probably helpful just to give an overview of um, what the document contains and really the purpose is to outline the key control measures for managing the spread of the virus within the construction environment. So what that really looks at is personal hygiene, PPE equipment, travel to and from work, the prevention of cross-contamination, how to manage close working, and also the management of social distancing to protect from infection. And it's interesting that the revised SOP incorporates the current advice on the public health measures needed to reduce the spread of COVID-19 in the community and workplaces, and is issued by NEFIT, the Department of Health and the government. So the CAF have played a huge role throughout the pandemic. And even as we speak in the midst of the second government mandated shutdown, we know that the CAF are working with the government to ensure the sites can reopen as soon as possible and reopen safely. I might just jump in there, Brian. I think it's also worth noting that throughout this period, the CIF have been publishing regular updates to their members, reminding them of not only the importance of continuing to adhere to the standard operating procedures, but increasingly, and particularly in the weeks running up to Christmas, putting greater emphasis on managing the risks outside the site boundary, not just avoiding congregating in the vicinity of the site and considering the risks of travel to and from site, but also trying to encourage COVID-19 compliant behaviour more generally in order to minimise the chances of a worker contracting the virus during their downtime. Well, that seems to show a high level of communication and proactivity, and it seems to have helped companies to respond effectively to rapidly evolving public health measures. Brian, would you agree with that assessment? I absolutely would agree, Katrina, yeah. It's clear that the measures and the response from industry have worked. Like, there's no evidence that the construction sector has been a driver of infections. And you only have to look at the government's own press release of a number of weeks ago that stated that the number of outbreaks associated with the sector represented 0.6% of all outbreaks since August 2020. So that figure in of itself speaks volumes. That is interesting. Well, in light of that, Neve, do you think there was any sense that activity should have been permitted to continue at the start of this year? Katrina, I think given the role the industry had played in seeking to ensure that construction sites were not a driver of the spread of infection, I think the industry was very disappointed at this recent site closure, which has been mandated by government since the start of January. That said, I think the government was clear that as a country, the number of infections was such that a shutdown in construction was considered necessary as part of the wider national effort to contain the pandemic. I might just jump in there, Neve, as well. I actually think that the biggest driver behind this decision was in relation to what happens off-site rather than concerns about work activities on-site, which by and large have been managed very well. And I think that concern particularly relates to the large numbers of construction workers having to travel to and from work. If you take into account that there are approximately 200,000 direct and indirect construction sector workers across the country, you can see why in that context, the government decided that it was important to have the vast majority of them stay home for an initial period because it is a significant number. Yes, that would make sense. It really is impossible to ignore the bigger picture and the critical role that staying at home has played at certain points over the past year. So for the moment, the vast majority of construction activity has ceased. But let's look at the exceptions, these essential services that are permitted to continue. Are they the same as previous lockdowns, Brian, or are they different? We have greater clarity this time around. 
I think that's the way the phrase it, Katrina. So last March, the majority of construction sites were required to close, apart from what was termed as essential services. And those essential services broadly related to three categories. So they were really the construction of essential head projects for dealing with COVID. Then you had the repair and construction of critical transport and utilities infrastructure. And then you also had the supply and delivery of essential or emergency maintenance to businesses and homes, but on an emergency call-out basis. But this time around, what will fall into the category of essential service has been narrowed, but it's also been spelled out more clearly. Now, our experience has been that the government departments are very willing to jump in and provide assistance and guidance where there are grey areas. Neve, I don't know how you feel in this, actually, but it was seen that if you look at the current list of essential services, I think that it suggests that the governments are prioritising their key policy objectives um, in allowing those to remain open. Yeah, I think that's right, Brian. There is, of course, still a focus on enabling continued construction on essential products directly related to managing the health crisis, such as in relation to pharmaceutical or other medical products, or indeed ensuring the maintenance of supply chains in respect of those services. And as with the first site shutdown, works for critical transport and utility infrastructure remains on the list. And that's going to include telecommunications, as well as projects for energy generation. And all maintenance and repair works which are required on an emergency call-out basis is also permitted to continue. And I agree with Brian that there is more clarity this time around, although there will always be some grey areas. When in doubt, it's going to be for the employer or developer to make the call as to whether certain works can or cannot proceed. And in making this decision, and particularly for works falling into this last category of emergency works, an assessment of the risks associated with not proceeding with certain works, perhaps fire safety works, which may include taking into account the fact that many commercial premises are not particularly occupied at the moment, that will need to be balanced against the need to take steps to minimise the spread of the virus. But I suppose what is different this time, as Brian has mentioned, is that emphasis has also been given to certain housing projects, for example, certain social and affordable projects, and works on other residential projects where these are due to be completed in the near future. And also emphasis for certain education projects, including the university campus at Grange Gorman. So we'll be keeping an eye on all of this over the coming months. Also to see how the shutdown affects key government commitments around social housing delivery, for example. Well, it does sound like a lot of consideration has been given to the current list of essential services, and you might expect this to be an evolving picture as the year progresses. So looking ahead then, as more sites are able to reopen, what do you think we can expect from a health and safety perspective, Brian? Well, certainly a continued high level of scrutiny and, you know, scrutiny both from a public health point of view and from a health and safety point of view. So the HSE were monitoring incident rates of COVID on site up until the current lockdown. Like that's absolutely going to continue um, once construction activities get back up and running. And I think we can also probably expect an increased presence of HSA officers on site as well. But I will say this, Katrina, the sector has shown great resilience and willingness to implement new protocols and to be adaptable and just do all that's necessary to mitigate the impact of the virus. And that will need to continue in the next few months. OK, well, it sounds like keeping communication channels open will play a key role in meeting the health and safety challenges that lie ahead. And let's hope that we see things improve for everybody. Okay, well, that's COVID-19. Neve, at the start, you mentioned a risk that has been around somewhat longer, and that's working from heights. 
What would you like to tell us about that? Thanks, Katrina. Yes, so moving away from COVID-19. In December 2020, the Health and Safety Authority published its annual review of workplace injury, illness and fatality statistics for 2018 and 2019. And as many of you may know, the report details the causes and characteristics of injuries, illnesses and fatalities in the workplace. And of the 47 fatal accidents reported to the Health and Safety Authority in 2019, agriculture accounted for 19 of those accidents and construction accounted for 12 fatalities. Essentially, one in four fatal accidents occurred in construction. And as in previous years, the most common cause of an accident which leads to a fatal injury remains falling from height, making up some 23% of all fatal accidents in this latest report. We will, in fact, be publishing an article on our website looking at working at height in more detail and some of the recent decisions in this area. But given the continued reminders of the very real risks associated with working at height, we also wanted to touch on this issue today. Neve, that's a very timely reminder that old risks are still there. And I suppose this is the type of risk we can all easily understand. But when we talk about the law that applies to this issue, are we talking about major commercial developments or does the law apply to sites of all shapes and sizes? The reality is that working from height for the purposes of health and safety regulations applies to all workplaces. And it includes work at height even one step off the ground, where if a person was to fall, such a fall could result in an injury. And if you think about it, that could include, you know, like a librarian who is standing on a one foot platform in order to reach higher shelves. That's working from height. But it's always worth remembering that health and safety regulations are predominantly focused on ensuring that work activities are undertaken safely. So employers may be subject to enforcement action by the health and safety authority, and that includes prosecution if they fail to comply with the regulations, even in circumstances where nobody is injured as a consequence. So in other words, Bran, liability will be imposed on an employer if injury could have occurred. And I think it's important to emphasise that the overarching principle is that working at height should be avoided if at all possible. And if work at height cannot be avoided, employers will need to ensure that work at height is not carried out unless it can be done safely so far as is reasonably practicable. And that's going to entail looking at alternatives to working at height or selecting and using appropriate equipment to allow the work at height to be undertaken safely through, say, the provision of mobile or more permanent work platforms, as well as ensuring there is adequate training given to all employees. That's interesting to hear because the casual observer might have thought that being on a ladder was part and parcel of construction work. But in fact, it could be said that the opposite is the case. It's strongly discouraged. And Brian, I understand there have been a number of recent cases involving the use of ladders as a means of working from height. Would you tell us about those cases and also what the health and safety authorities say about this issue? So the Health and Safety Authority have been very clear, like they're going to scrutinise so closely the use of ladders and particularly the use of ladders on construction sites. Now, the health and safety regulations themselves make it clear that the use of ladders should be the exception rather than the rule. And wherever possible, the use of ladders should be supplanted with more suitable alternative work equipment with additional safety features. So if you have a think about the form of equipment that would be used on site, so you're thinking about towers, mobile platforms, scaffolds, temporary stairs, that type of equipment. And the two recent cases that you mentioned are interesting and they signed a warning note to both employers and workers alike when it comes to working from height and in particular using ladders. 
And both of these cases arose in the context of claims for damages due to injuries suffered by enforcers' employees. So in the first case of Barry and Longmore, an A-frame ladder was being used by a painter to reach a Velux window. The ladder snapped in two, the painter fell, he fractured his skull and ended up with a traumatic brain injury and the court of first instance awarded damages of some €3 million. Euro. And in the second case of Posca and DCI Energy Control Limited, it's very similar circumstances again. A worker climbed a ladder to pump polystyrene insulation into a wall and lost his footing. And he unfortunately also suffered serious injuries. Now, the court expressly stated that the employer had been negligent in failing to provide a safe and secure system of work with adequate safety measures. What's very interesting in the Posca case is that the judge, Miss Justice O'Halloran, observed that a ladder in itself is a dangerous piece of equipment. So that soundbite alone should be a very stark warning as to how the courts will view the use of ladders. So both of those cases emphasise that not only may an employer be exposed to enforcement action where it can't be shown that the use of a ladder was justified, but they may also be exposed to very significant claims for damages for personal injuries. Well, Neve, still on the theme of ladders, it strikes me that you often see people on the roofs of houses, which they've clearly accessed by ladder. If I were to have worked on in my house, do I have legal obligations? Yeah, Katrina, I have to say that I have my heart in my mouth when I walk along the street and see people working on roofs. Um, and it can be a real issue. And I think it's important to understand that health and safety regulation applies to all places of work. So the contractor who's working on your house will owe exactly the same duties to his workers as the contractor who is working on a big office development. But in addition, and since 2013, the additional requirements set out in the construction regulations have applied to both commercial and domestic works. And that will mean that if you're carrying out works to your house, you personally will have duties as the client under those regulations. And that will entail duties when you set about employing contractors to renovate your house. So that's going to include having to appoint competent designers and contractors, as well as appointing project supervisors for the design process and the construction stage. And there was a prosecution brought by the Health and Safety Authority during the summer of 2019, which emphasised this point. And in that case, a retired architect was having works done to his South Dublin home. And one of the workers engaged by the contractor suffered a fall and was killed. And that prompted an investigation by the Health and Safety Authority, which looked at whether the architect had met all of his health and safety obligations. And in the event, it transpired that the architect had failed to appoint project supervisors for the project and the architect was charged and prosecuted and then received a fine of €2,500. A cautionary tale indeed. It sounds like a very sad set of circumstances for everyone involved. But I suppose it's good to highlight obligations with which perhaps more people should be familiar. I think that brings us to the close of the topics that we intended to look at today. On a more positive note, I would just like to say that if you have any follow-up questions, please do contact Neve, Brian, anyone on our health and safety group, or indeed your usual contact at Arthur Cox. You might also like to look out for a briefing that will be coming from Kevin and Sarah of our health and safety group. That will look at remote working and key considerations for employers. And as always, please do keep an eye on our website for briefings on these and other issues. Neve, Brian, thank you both very much and thank you, the listener, for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed our podcast. Mm-hmm.